Salam alaikum, konnichiwa, buongiorno principesha. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Dennis Walker, and today we've got the one and only Haya Al-Hajelan, the founder of the Arab Psychedelic Society and an integration specialist. I would say my biggest dream in life would be to be a touring musician, to be very honest with you, and to record a few albums. But other than that, my other big dream is to see a psychedelic research center and clinic open here in the Middle East. Another smaller dream I have is to curate a retreat for Saudi female artists in which uh, psychedelics will be uh, used and the purpose would be to heal through art and psychedelics and to create art through the healing process. She's also an extraordinary musician. We're going to hear a little bit more about what it's like to be a female jazz, Arabic, rock fusion, multi-instrumentalist playing in a band doing paid gigs in Saudi Arabia. Yes, Haya is an extraordinary individual who has become well-known throughout the world for her advocacy and influence around psychedelic education for people in the Swana region, that's Southwest Asia, North African region, a decolonial term used in place of the overtly politicized terms Middle East. We're going to be unpacking a lot around the intersection of psychedelics and the world beyond Anglo and Eurocentricity. What do the future of psychedelics and psychedelic assisted therapies look like beyond Anglo and Eurocentricity? How do they extend to the Swana region and to the global south? And what is it like to be a woman in Saudi Arabia who is public facing and their advocacy about psychedelic education? So without further ado, let's get this show on the road. Salam alaikum, Haya al Hejelan, founder of Arab Psychedelic Society and a psychedelic integration specialist. It's an absolute pleasure to host you. How are you doing today, Haya? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? Life is good. I just returned from Miami and have a lot of talking points we can dive into. There's so much happening right now, but I want to start off just asking you about what it's like to be a public-facing advocate of psychedelic medicines and psychedelic-assisted therapies being a woman in the Middle East. You know, I've spent quite a bit of time in Saudi Arabia and Riyadh and Dubai and different parts of the Middle East, and I can say that women talking about psychedelics was never something that came up in public. So how has that experience been like for you? Why did you decide to be public-facing with it? And, and what do you got going on with the Arab Psychedelic Society? Yeah, so it's been super exciting. It's a great time to be to be alive in uh, in the world of psychedelics, and it's a great time to be alive, especially as a woman in Saudi Arabia. The tides have really shifted. Uh, they've really taken a, a very big turn in the last few years, and it's amazing how a few years ago it was a great disadvantage to be a woman in Saudi Arabia, whereas today it's really it's something that. It's something that really is to our advantage. Women are given so many opportunities here. Women are actually preferred as by uh, Saudi employers. They're, they prefer to hire Saudi women as employees for a number of reasons. But there's really a push to empower Saudi women. And this also extends to you know being able to talk about psychedelics. So a few years ago, it would have been very difficult to talk about psychedelics at all. It would have been difficult as a woman also. It would have been difficult in general to speak about psychedelics in the country. However, it's changed a lot. And uh, yeah, people have been very receptive, very excited to hear about what's happening abroad and excited about the, the prospect of us being able to integrate psychedelic science and psychedelic therapies into 
into the Middle East. The Middle East culture and Saudi Arabia specifically has changed so much since I lived there. I was there in 2013 and it was a previous administration. And I've, I remember that concerts were not allowed to happen when I was there. And of course there was, there were many fine musicians there playing the Oud. And I, I used to go to the Oud making district to the Luthiers in Riyadh in one of the neighborhoods and sit there and hear them play and watch them working on their craft. And now you've got music festivals, right? Middle Beast is a very large festival that has a lot of international DJs and musicians. I know that there was one in Jeddah last year. And it just really seems like the tides have shifted, as you mentioned. And the same is happening all over the place now, right? And there's quite a bit of, uh, there's been quite a revolution happening with the neighbors to the north, right, in Iran. And so I just want to hear about your perspective being a female musician in Saudi Arabia, because I see that you're very active in the music scene. You've been playing concerts and you sound quite good. I must note you sound amazing. I have to say from everything I've heard. So tell us a little bit about how you got started playing music and maybe if there's an intersection in your mind between your psychedelic experiences and your role as a musician and the fact that you are a, a female rock musician in Saudi Arabia, which is so badass. Wow, where did I start with this one? Oh, I didn't know where to start actually. So four years ago, we had the first jazz festival in Saudi Arabia, but there wasn't a single woman performing. And that's something I definitely took note of, but I was super excited for us to even have a jazz uh, festival. I knew that that would change very soon. Fast forward four years, today there was a giant conference called the Miss Global Forum and I had the the honor of playing guitar alongside a uh, great trailblazing Saudi singer and artist called Tam Tam. So me and her opened for the conference today, uh, her on vocals and me on guitar, which was really, really exciting. So, so that kind of paints a picture of where we were and where we are today. There's a lot of, a lot of music that's happening. A lot of, uh, as you mentioned, concerts, uh, Soundstorm by Middle Beast. There's a rock festival that's happening. Um, or I think it's a metal or heavy rock fest happening on Friday here. So super exciting stuff. And I am now playing with a band. We're called Sira. And it's, uh, we're, all four of us are women. Uh, which is really exciting. And uh, Sira, the word means tale or journey, which uh, I think uh, is is really cool because our music really does kind of paint these different pictures of, of different stories, uh, experiences that we've had. As far as how psychedelics have influenced my music making, they've influenced me massively. So and I started playing music when I was eight, so about 20 years ago, very long time ago. But I've always had uh, a creative block for a number of different reasons. And when I had my first experiences with psychedelics, that's when I started actually writing music. So it really opened me up in many ways. Um, yeah, I think uh, psychedelics are amazing therapeutic tools or they have amazing potential as therapeutic tools. There's a lot of risk associated with it too, which we don't talk about nearly enough. Uh, and I, I really, I've been really pushing to talk more about the dark side of psychedelics or how things can go wrong and how we can prevent things from going wrong. But um, but yeah, but psychedelics do have great therapeutic potential uh, and more, more so than just therapeutic potential, it has great potential in being able to promote creativity, uh, personal discovery, spiritual growth, things of that sort. I would say my biggest dream in life 
would be to be a touring musician, to be very honest with you, and to record a few albums. But other than that, my other big dream is to see a psychedelic research center and clinic open here in the Middle East. Another smaller dream I have is to curate a retreat for Saudi female artists in which uh, psychedelics will be uh, used. And the purpose would be to heal through art and psychedelics and to create art through the healing process with psychedelics as, a to as tools. Wow, what a, what a time to be alive. You're right. This is a fascinating period of, of our species right now and seeing everything happening at the same time around the world with the conversation about psychedelics and about the empowerment of all beings, of all people, rather than just, you know, the silos of influence and power, which have traditionally, of course, been white affluent men and Eurocentric and this and that. This conversation is happening, A, but also there's tangible events and tangible outcomes from it that are starting to shape the future world, which is really exciting. I wanted to ask you about, first of all, would love to talk about the dark side of psychedelics because it doesn't get talked about enough. So let's dive into that. But before we do, I'd love to ask you about your your transition from discovering psychedelics in the United States, because it's my understanding you were at university in Los Angeles, and that's actually quite a common experience, right? Or it's not uncommon to, to be at a university in California. I went to the University of San Francisco and have a psychedelic experience because that's a place where it's quite open, right? We have the associations with the culture industry, with Hollywood and with Silicon Valley. So there's it's not quite uncommon, but it is uncommon to have an experience like that that's so impactful and then to transition back to Saudi Arabia and to go back to live there. So what was that process like for you to turn on and have a psychedelic experience and have it shape your character and influence you and then to leave and go back and, and acclimate again to traditional life in Saudi Arabia where maybe it's not nearly as open and, and these types of experiences don't have a container that it's so readily av readily available for people to talk about them. So what was that transition like for you? So I went to a school in Claremont McKenna College where I know you said your dad uh, went to school there, right? Yeah, small world. So actually, I mean, it is both common and uncommon for Saudis to be studying in, in the U.S. It's common in the sense that we were very lucky to have a scholarship program that was open to, to many, many Saudis. So I think that at one point there were there were tens, if not a hundred thousand Saudi that was studying in this in the U.S. Uh, on this scholarship. So I I was fortunate enough to be on the scholarship program. I attended CMC and I had the chance of uh, hearing James Fadiman talk about. Uh, he spoke at uh, my school and his uh, his uh, lecture was titled "The Psychedelic Renaissance." So I was very intrigued and I attended it and I was mind blown. I had experiences, let's say, with uh, altered states of consciousness. I'm somewhat pleading the fifth here. I don't want to self-incriminate by saying that I've experimented with anything illegal, but I've. Uh, but it's legal to experiment with altered states of consciousness. So how I got to these altered states of consciousness, I will not reveal. But anyways, <laughs> I have ADHD, by the way, so I sometimes go off on tangents. But anyways, uh, coming back to the point. So yeah, I did have experiences with altered states of consciousness, which were super healing. It helped me break through years and years and years of uh, trauma and of uh, other other shit that was a result of uh, religious uh, fanaticism and uh, uh, gender oppression and things of that sort that we experienced uh, growing up here and more than just that it helped me just work through a lot of trauma and when I did have these experiences the first thing that I thought about was purpose so the first thing I thought about was how fortunate I was to have had these experiences seeing this, having 
a different lens from which I was able to perceive reality and being able to experience life from a depression-free perspective for the first time in my life. And I felt a really strong calling to make this available to everyone who is suffering and everyone else who needs healing. My own experience, my own healing experiences really made me realize that it's a fundamental human right for someone to have access to healing and to healing that's that's affordable, that's accessible, that's self-directed also. And that's something that altered states of consciousness can really provide, of course, if sensible policy and regulations are put into place. So yeah, so going from having these experiences in the US, I became obsessed with studying altered states of consciousness, specifically studying psychedelics as tools to access these altered states of consciousness and healing. So I wrote many papers for classes like brain and behavior, neuropsychology, things of that sort. Ended up doing a senior thesis focusing on the clinical uses of psychedelics. The title I was really proud of, I found it on a meme of Albert Hoffman and it said, ask your doctor if psychedelics are right for you. So that was the title of my my, my thesis. So when I graduated from my bachelor's, I was between Saudi and other places too. But when I would come back to Saudi, it was still, I mean, at that time, women still were not able to drive. So things hadn't really, I mean, things were not where they are now. So back then I could not talk about psychedelics at all. I did, but very warily. I was very careful. But as time progressed, I started hearing more and more people actually have positive uh, reactions to me talking to them about my my interest in psychedelic science. And then I had this one experience where I was working at a startup here and I came across classified information or a, class, a classified document. Cannot talk about too much, but I, all I can say is that it suggested, this was in 2019, it suggested that people high up in governmental positions in Saudi Arabia were aware of psychedelic therapy or of the research happening abroad. So that was the first moment in which I was like, oh, things are moving in the right direction. Very, very small baby steps, but there's some movement. And then later that year, I attended a conference in Kuwait put on by the Middle East Psychological Association. And one of the keynote lectures was on the future of mental health care. And before the presentation, I was talking to some people about my interest in psychedelics. I received uh, mixed feedback. There was a therapist, a well-known therapist in Saudi, who was very um, receptive and very excited when I spoke to her about about my interest in psychedelic therapy, and she had heard about ayahuasca. And then I spoke to someone else who was uh, quite patronizing. He, you know, kind of looked at me like I was crazy when I told him I'm interested in psychedelics. It made made a snarky remark. And then we both ended up at this uh, presentation on the future of mental health. Healthcare and the presenter, his name is Dr. Mohammed El Swedan. He's a very well known psychiatrist in Kuwait and actually he practices ketamine assisted therapy. So he gave a presentation about what the future of mental health care will look like and he presented four slides or six slides on psychedelic assisted therapy, ketamine and psilocybin. And he prefaced it by saying that this is a area of innovation or research that I personally am very excited about. So when that happened, I was super excited and I looked back at the person who made a snarky remark and, you know, I kind of gave him a look where I was, a friendly look where I was like, you see, there's something to this. I'm not crazy. It was really a, a profound moment. So this was in 2019. And then I left for my master's in uh, 2020. 
I did uh, an MSc in Applied Positive Psychology and Coaching Psychology, also focused on psychedelics, uh, integrating psychedelics into well-being and preventative measures, let's say, people from developing severe psychological disorders by increasing wellness and well-being and things of that sort. So yeah, so I did my master's and then I graduated exactly a year ago, a little bit over a year ago, and I came back here and yeah, there wasn't much movement happening. I, I started working with Fluence as an assistant trainer. So I was based in Saudi, but the work that I was doing with psychedelics was abroad. So Fluence is it's an organization that's based in the U.S. and I assisted in, tra- in trainings for ketamine-assisted therapy. I taught a class called Psychological uh, Approaches to Psychedelic Therapy, and I also assisted with uh, an intro to psychedelic therapy training program. So that's the extent to which I was involved with psychedelics. I was also doing work with the Psychedelic Society in the U.K., planning events and things of that sort. So I wasn't there wasn't much movement happening in in Saudi. But then I was contacted to do an interview with Arab News by a great journalist, Saudi journalist her name is Nedal Turki. So she contacted me to interview me about uh, the prospect of psychedelic assisted therapy in Saudi or psychedelic research. So we had that discussion and the article was published in June and it was received very very positively i haven't received a single negative comment about that uh, interview so that was really exciting and when that happened i was i had been toying around with the idea of putting together a psych- an arab psychedelic society but never got around to it because i was kind of nervous about doing it but that interview gave me the courage to i wouldn't really call myself a founder because all i did was really start a uh, uh, open a, an instagram page and i put together you know a little bit of a vision and a, mi- and a mission and goals but i really was supported very much by my colleagues here intelligent and strong arab women and psychologists uh, so someone who has been really helping me with refining the Arab Psychedelic Society's vision and the goals is great clinical psychologist called Sima Basil, and she's based from she's based in Dubai, and she is very knowledgeable about mycology. So uh, she's she's been really supporting me in uh, in finding ways to make the Arab Psychedelic Society happen. Um, so some other uh, of my some other amazing women who are my colleagues also. Um, are Natalie Rostam, who is a clinical psychologist based in Beirut, and she uh, has been very supportive also with um, with uh, helping with brainstorming with me ways to raise awareness around psychedelics and to psychoeducate people here about psychedelic therapy. So uh, me and her and a third colleague of mine, her name is Noor Hussain. Uh, she's also fantastic. She's finishing up her bachelor's in UBC. Uh, in psychology, she's doing like an honors program right now, and she's doing research with Maps Canada. So me and Noor and uh, Natalie have been working together with Ben Sessa as a, a mentor on a research paper looking at incorporating psychedelics in treating more uh, complicated or complex disorders that are a result of trauma. So uh, specifically focusing on borderline personality disorder. So that's what we've been working on from from the Middle East, and we're trying to fine tune that paper and to look more on how. These therapies, uh, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy specifically, can be adapted to treating PTSD and complex PTSD and personality disorders here in the Middle East. That was a wonderful overview of all of the different, the many different irons in the fire that you have. There's so many different projects you're involved with, and I want to ask a little bit about 
how you foresee the rolling out or the legalization and the future landscape of psychedelics in the Middle East and in Swana, which I guess, right, is the Southwest Asia and North Africa regions. And this idea of like the global South, I think, is one word people have used for this or parts of it is the conversation about psychedelics being introduced to the mainstream doesn't seem to touch the global South. It's always a very Eurocentric, a very US centric, a white person centric conversation. And increasingly, there are more perspectives that are challenging this and are saying, well, you know, there has to be conversation and opportunities for people to have access in these other countries. Uh, like, you know, we had mentioned Bangladesh, like how many people in Bangladesh are going to have access to these potentially life-saving therapies in, in many cases. And uh, many of the conferences I've been to, many of the discussions I've had on the podcast, I realized like a lot of the money and the media and things like this are centered around this very Eurocentric right way of looking at things, uh, very uh, Anglo-centric. So I just love to hear, because it's not a conversation that's being had nearly enough, where do you foresee psychedelics fitting into Arab culture in the next 10 years or into the culture of various Swana countries in the next 10 years or so as this whole industry starts to get rounded out a little bit more? Let's talk about it from an idealistic perspective and then maybe from a pragmatic standpoint, because I feel like if it's coming out in the West and, you know, these hospitals and researchers and King's College in London and, uh, you know, Johns Hopkins, like that, that data is, is getting to be increasingly, it's mounting and there's a mountain of evidence suggesting that psychedelic assisted therapies and psychedelic medicines can in fact be a very legitimate tool for treating and mitigating certain conditions, right? And we've, we've had this conversation a lot, but I don't hear anybody talking about how it's going to fit or roll out into a culture like, you know, Swana or the Middle East or whatever. So I guess that's my question. It's just like, where do you see the psychedelic renaissance, quote unquote, headed in the Middle East? What we have so far here is ketamine that's administered in clinics or in hospitals by psychiatrists. So for to treat mental health disorders and psychiatric disorders. But accessibility is also a huge um, problem. Someone was talking to me about how they were considering ketamine therapy, but uh, they didn't end up going through with it because it would have costed them anywhere between fifteen dollars to $20,000, which is ridiculous. So I don't know too much about how ketamine is being administered here, in all honesty. I don't know how people are able to access it because $20,000 is inaccessible for most people here. So I... I will really push myself to do some more research to see how it's it's unfolding here ketamine treatment. However, how from an idealistic perspective, how do I see this happening? I see, you know, more opportunities to talk about psychedelics openly. So, for example, I've been approached recently by a curator who is putting together a program for an art festival who wanted to slot in at some time for someone to come and talk about psychedelic therapy just in general what is psychedelic therapy so me and him are currently in talks about how to make that happen unfortunately as you can imagine when the arab psychedelic society was presented to the programmers it was uh, kind of uh, flagged let's say because the arab psychedelic society raises eyebrows here so the way that I see it happening, hopefully we'll be able to get this in the program and uh, me and some of my colleagues will be able to have a panel where we just talk about what is psychedelic therapy, what is happening in the world of research abroad. And many countries in the Middle East, especially Saudi, really look to the West for guidance when it comes to science and technology and things of that sort. So what I, what I think is that as the research progresses, 
uh, in the U.S. And as psychedelic clinics start to pop up and start to flourish and start to spread, I think it's more likely that this will transfer over to to the Middle East, to Saudi Arabia specifically. You know, I think in terms of policy, there will probably be a lot of challenges in making psychedelic therapy uh, legal and accessible here, but I think it's it's possible. But I also am an optimist. I'm concerned about how how are we going to make sure that it is accessible to to everyone or to to as many people as 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 need it. And I I know that there's uh, I mean there's a lot of philanthropic philanthropic uh, individuals here. There's a lot of funds that go into you know, uh, mental health uh, research and a lot of funding into things of that sort. So uh, I'm really hoping that that will also be funneled into uh, psychedelic therapy here. But I'm also really concerned about how we're going to make psychedelic therapy, uh, how we're going to tailor it in a way that benefits people here. Because it's not a one-size-fits-all, of course, and uh, one's cultural background will really influence the psychedelic experience. You know how there's set and setting, uh, but there's also something that I think her name was Eisner. She was she was uh, a, a female f- um, figure in the psych- in the world of psychedelics. I'm very proud that she was a woman, but she also uh, introduced the term the matrix. So it's not just about the set and setting, but it's also about the cultural and legal um, structures in which you exist. So I wonder how the matrix in the Middle East and in the Global South will affect one's responsiveness to psychedelic therapy. So for example, how will religion come into play? Um, how will someone's religious conditioning will uh, be tricky to to um, to work with because um, I, you know in, in a religious from a religious perspective, drugs are haram. Drugs are absolutely forbidden so how are we going to work with that how are we going to change the perspective around you know um uh, the fact that like psychedelics are, are tools they can be medicine uh, when they're used therapeutically they're not drugs and they're not haram so there's a lot of things to consider how are we going to um how are we going to integrate people's spirituality into the psychedelic experience or the the process the therapeutic process so there's a lot more questions than answers honestly but um but I'm really excited about uh, about the fact that people are starting to ask these questions. And one of the goals of the Arab Psychedelic Society is, in addition to psychoeducating, we are trying to cre- create a platform for um, for Arab psychologists and Arab uh, doctors and physicians and um, scientists and policymakers. Uh, we're trying to create a platform for them to come and to not just get educated about the research that's happening abroad, but for them to be in communication with each other about collaborative opportunities. Something else that I really am excited about. Um, so I also do some mentoring with the SSDP, Students for Sensible Drug Policy. And that's really exciting because that gives me, that is uh, helping me develop the skills that I will need to mentor uh, younger people here in the Middle East. So I'm thinking specifically about, let's say, um, uh, people, uh, young adults who are about to graduate high school and are thinking of going into medicine or into psychology or into um, even anthropology or uh, people who are in uh, in their bachelor's or in their master's and are thinking of a specialty. I am so excited about them learning about psychedelic therapy and psychedelic research because that might encourage them to dedicate their career to uh, to studying this or that might um encourage them not necessarily to dedicate their career although that would be really that would be great but for them to just look into a bit uh, more more uh, to to explore it a bit more and to think of ways that they can 
um, they can contribute to the psychedelic renaissance. They can bring their, their cultural uh, contribution to the psychedelic renaissance and to make it, you know, to make it more global, let's say. So a lot of, a lot of hurdles ahead of us. Yeah, well, we're navigating those over here on this side of the world, and it's already turning into a bit of a cluster freak, we'll call it. So I can only imagine what it's going to be like when it rolls out on a more global stage. And I wanted to ask you about misconceptions about life in Saudi Arabia, because it's one of, you know, tr traditionally it's been a pretty closed off place. Like, uh, you know, when I was living in Saudi they didn't issue tourist visas. Like you couldn't just go visit. You had to have, you know, be going on the Hajj, on the pilgrimage to Mecca, or have family, be visiting family. And just within the last year, last couple of years is when they started issuing tourist permits. I just wanted to ask about misconceptions because I had a lot of misconceptions when I arrived in Riyadh and it was December of 2012. And I fortunately had a very good network of Saudi friends who had attended university with me at the University of San Francisco. So I was able to, you know, make phone calls saying, hey, I just got on with this education contractor and I'm going to be teaching in Riyadh and I don't know anyone there, but I know you guys. So can you take care of me? And they just rolled out the red carpet. They took such good care of me from the minute I landed. They took me out to dinner every night, you know, took me into their homes, their estrajas, right? I was playing the card games. I forgot the name of it. There's a popular card game I learned playing down there. Balot, exactly. I was playing Balot and uh, my team is Al Hilal. You know, they were taking me to soccer games. So, what, and of course, I came up against a number of different cultural challenges too when you're acclimating, right? And you're seeing what, what one distinction I had with my experience in Saudi Arabia is I didn't live on a compound. A lot of expats, a lot of, you know, foreigners working there, they live on these compounds that are basically mini versions of America, right? They have like driving ranges and batting cages, swimming pools, bars, all of that. And I didn't do, I lived in a hotel with a lot of locals. So I, I felt like I got a more authentic experience. I got to, you know, drive around Saudi, visit different cities. I went to Jeddah, went to Taif, went to Dammam, and it really won me over, you know, not to say that there weren't lots of social issues and environmental issues too, as there are everywhere. But I noticed that like I had a very different conception or perception of what living in Saudi Arabia was going to be like versus what it was like. And I had a, a really wonderful experience there. And a lot of it came down to the kindness of the people. I met so many kind people who would go out of their way to help me, who, you know, would, would introduce me to their friends. I would always make the joke. It's like, if you make friends with like one Saudi person, then you're friends with the whole family. They have like a thousand cousins. And like, I would find myself sitting in these, you know, estrahas or like sitting at people's houses and six hours would go by where nobody really did anything. We're just chatting, you know? It's like people would just sit and talk for hours and drink tea. And I thought, in the United States, we don't have that kind of culture. We need to be distracted. You know, we need to be watching something on TV or we need to be, you know, engaged in doing something. But I just, I felt that a lot of people were cool just to hang out and just to chat, you know? Oh, we're going to hang out at my cousin's house. What are we going to do there? Oh, just sit around, just talk for six hours. Uh, I don't know if that's any, any kind of experience you've had, but I just was trying to, you know, bring up some of the misconceptions I had thinking that Saudi Arabia specifically was going to be very unwelcoming and very harsh. And, uh, you know, I was going to be treated as this foreigner, but that was not the case at all. I, I felt very comfortable there. And a lot of that was due to the kindness of the people and the hospitality. And, you know, I could talk at length about my experience there and all the people I met, the places I went, this and that and the other. But for you, what are some misconceptions for people living outside of Saudi Arabia who look at this kingdom as being sort of this closed off insular place where everything's so tightly regulated? Uh, what is the actual reality of your experience there? 
Yeah, so uh, I'm really happy to hear that you had you had such a positive experience. Uh, Arab hospitality is on another level. Yeah, uh, I mean, back then things were very different than things are today, of course, for, for many reasons. And also I think the misconceptions back then are kind of different than the misca- misconceptions today. Uh, some are still the same. I would say the misconceptions that re- have remained the same is that we are still very conservative, which I mean... A big part of the country is conservative. It's just that they don't have the they don't have as much of a platform and as much power to control our lives, everyone's lives, as they did back then. Now there's more room for people who are more progressive and more liberal to steer the country's future. Let's see. And I mean, yeah. So some of the misconceptions is that we're super conservative. Women have no rights. That's absolutely. I mean, that's really the complete opposite of today's reality. Some of the other misconceptions. I don't know if this is really much of a misconception, but I'm I'm making this assumption based on old misconceptions that I've come across. So people might think that we're not that that uh, people in Saudi are not very educated, which is also very untrue. Um, Saudi Arabia has one of the highest numbers of of women that have PhDs. So um, this is a, a completely false. Uh, Saudis are a majority or a big number of Saudis are highly educated. Some of the other misconceptions, I, I can't really think of much more. I mean, you know, back uh, in the 2000s, 2000s and 2010s, uh, a big part of the misconception was that had to do a lot with like terrorism and things of that sort. But thank God, I mean, Saudi Arabia has has created or has done a great job of completely or mostly, I would say, eradicating terrorism and the country is really moving towards a progressive version of Islam so religious uh, extremism is not as as present as it was in the past so that's also a misconception that I believe is changing with time so people don't really think or people are starting to see that that Saudi is becoming more open and modern and progressive and I'm happy to say that there isn't as much of an association between fanaticism and Saudi Arabia today as there was in the past. Awesome. Thank you for diving into that. And, you know, I just, I had my mind blown over there by what a wonderful place it was versus the media stereotypical imagery of it being, you know, so harsh and like so many penalties. Everyone's like, you have to be so careful about, you know, where you go. And while these are good advice, it's true. I found that there was quite a bit of compassion there, that people were compassionate. And I literally had experiences where people would stop their cars on the street. If they noticed me, like I looked like I was lost or something, they would like park their car, pull over and come and try to help me even beyond the language barrier. And like, I might even cry telling this story. But one story that I've taken with me for my whole life was when I was at the hotel and I was I was at a friend's hotel in another city because I was living in Al Karj for three months, which is like the smallest, randomest little town. There's a giant airbase there, and I was uh, teaching English to the Saudi Royal Air Force, which was not really what I signed up for, but it's, my contract got sold there, so I ended up living on a military base. So I'm at the hotel and in Riyadh and it turns out my friend is teaching that day and he won't be home for hours and like his phone's off and people had told me like you're probably just gonna have to wait here at the hotel till like six o'clock and it's like you know uh, 11 in the morning so I was literally sitting on the ground outside of a my friend's hotel room and this Pakistani guy came up who was working there there's a lot of you know Pakistani uh, people working in the country and he approached me and he goes 
you shouldn't be sitting there. You look like maybe you're waiting for someone. And I go, yeah, I, I explained the situation to him. He goes, I want you to come into my apartment and my room and I'm going to cook a meal for you and I'm going to entertain you. And there was no reason for him to do this. And he spent like four hours with me just telling me stories about Pakistan, about his work at the airport, made really delicious curry for me. And it was just a really really humanizing experience where I thought, wow, like you had no reason to help me and you just kind of rearranged your whole day and treated me like royalty. And I've always kept that story with me because, you know, he, he was Muslim too. And I grew up Christian and he didn't try to do a hard sell and try to convert me to Islam. He talked about his experience, his perspective, and it actually won me over so much where I'm like, I'm so used to having people like aggressively push the religion on me, you know, when you go out to certain circles or whatever, but it, it actually felt far more effective that this guy wasn't trying to convert me. He was just telling me about his life and feeding me a meal. And, uh, you know, I don't know how good of a job I did articulating that story, but it's something that's always stuck with me about just like random acts of kindness. And like, even when you're very different than someone, you grew up in a different country, you have a different religion, there's still such an important need for empathy and for being able to connect with people and sit down and share a meal together. That whole time in Saudi Arabia really changed my life. Wow. Okay. So I managed to get that through that one without crying. Great. So the last thing, let, let's, let's tap in. <laughs> and I think in, in a nutshell, it just sums up the need. We need to be nice to each other. We need to find ways to show hospitality because you never know what people are going through. And, you know, and we live in a time and in an era where there's so much volatility, so much disagreement, argument, you know, hostilities. And there has to be some kind of salve to that. And I think a lot of us are hoping that and banking on being able to treat psychedelics bring psychedelics into our global village that we have and hopefully be able to use them to amplify the best traits of our species and the best parts of our culture. Of course, there's a dark side too. And you know, that's going to require a whole other podcast to go into. But yeah, let, let's close off just talking about any upcoming events or projects that you're involved with. Because as previously noted, you've got a lot going on as many of us do in this space. So what are some of the projects that you're really excited about? And maybe some other ones that are further out, you know, in the next couple years that you hope to get around to yeah so what i'm working on uh immediately right now in the near future is uh i'm working on making the arab psychedelic society a bit more official so running events things of that sort so hopefully this art festival that's happening in february hopefully they'll approve a uh, presentation that we can do on psychedelic therapy and if not the uh, curator was saying that he has a studio in dubai we could potentially have a event over there but that's there's nothing confirmed with that so really a, a lot of what i have planned for the future is really psychoeducating and raising awareness about psychedelic research and things of that sort there's the uh, paper i mentioned that i'm working on with my with my colleagues uh, natalia and noor something i'm still uh, an assistant trainer with fluence i'm hoping that i'll be able to do some more training with them some more mentorship that i'm doing with sssdp but in the long run i I'm really considering going back to school for a PhD to be able to to be able to really see this dream uh, into reality, which is the the dream to have a psychedelic research center and clinic open here. And if not a research center, then maybe just even, maybe even like research programs or even smaller than that, a research a research team or something of that sort. So that's what I'm working on in the immediate future. I I'm really focused on my music right now, on my band, and on developing myself more as a musician. Um, 
I've I had my first paid gig last week, which I was really excited about. So I made my first uh, my first few dollars from uh, from playing publicly, which was really awesome. The gig today was also really exciting. So I, and the band that I play with, a lot of our music is like psychedelic influenced. So we have a psychedelic sound. Uh, we're very much influenced by Jefferson Airplane and the likes of of Jimi Hendrix and uh, the Doors. And uh, but what we're trying to do is we're our music could be described as like Arabic fusion progressive rock, and we're trying to create a modern sound that is very much rooted in our culture and in our own sonic spice. Let's see. Wonderful. Thank you for the breakdown right there. And I dare say we have future collaborations to look forward to because I'm really enjoying getting connected to what you're working on, and I I would love to start doing more content around music it's so important to me I've played in bands my whole life and you know recorded and this and that and uh, I even had a guitar when I was in Saudi Arabia and it kept me sane you know being able to channel my experiences into songs and so thank you very much Haya Al-Hajelan for joining us on the Micropreneur podcast you're welcome anytime I'm really looking forward to future opportunities to connect with you out there somewhere in Aswana region yeah we're looking forward to having you back in Saudi cool well thank you have a great day yeah thanks there's so much to cover in the mushroom universe and so many mycopreneurs leveraging the infinite potential of fungi to create a more ecologically balanced, inclusive, and equitable world for all of us mischievous little monkeys. I am completely stoked that you've chosen to spend some of your hard-earned time in our little corner of the mycoverse. Hop on the gram, say what's up, at mycopreneur podcast, that's the handle, don't get it twisted. We've got the full suite of social media up and running. Twitter, Micopreneur. Got the YouTubes dialed in, Micopreneur. Drop us a line. Tell your grandma and your kooky uncle. Tell your wife and your kids. If you're a Micopreneur yourself, you want to hop on the pod, by all means, willkommen, bienvenidos, welcome. Don't be a stranger. Let us know your thoughts on this episode, and also let us know what you want to hear in future episodes. This is a team effort. Thanks for stopping by the Micopreneur Podcast. Have a lovely day. We'll see you back here next week.